Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, and welcome to the OIS Podcast. This is Tom Salemi, and I'm really happy to have Bob Greenberg, President and CEO of device company Second Sight with us. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. Uh, Second Sight, of course, uh, developed and sells the Argus II uh, retinal prosthesis system, and it's the first approved device that can restore vision for at least some folks, those who suffer from retinitis, retinitis pigmentosa. Uh, and I know there's some other indications that you'll be working on down the line. But uh, I really enjoy that this, this story, Bob. I and mean, one of the things I, I love about MedTech is just the, the wonder of the technology uh, I'm a I'm a Star Trek geek, so I, I see things like this, and I can immediately immediately tie to visions of the future that we're all sort of accustomed to. I wonder, as CEO of a company like this, do you ever do you ever lose that that sense of wonder of what you're actually working on, and and, and the uh, the impact that your your devices can really have on people? No, I don't think uh, I don't think you have ever lost a sense of wonder. And really, if I think back, it actually started when I was a medical student at Johns Hopkins and I met uh, retinal surgeon Eugene Dewan and for lunch and he told me the very next day he was going to the operating room to electrically stimulate a blind patient's uh, retina to see if the patient would see anything and asked me to come to uh, come along and, and see what uh, they were doing. And I uh, had never been to an operating room before, and so uh, it was an incredible, generous uh, offer to, uh, to come to the operating room. So you were, you were in the room? Out to be his- so I was in the room, and it wow. turned out to be a historic day where uh, Gene put, uh, under local anesthesia, a wire in a patient's uh, eye as close to the retina as he could, and a wake patient, and uh, Mark Hamayan and uh, Jalan Dagnoli were running the electronics, turned a little bit of current on, the patient saw a spot of light, Gene put a second electrode in, the patient saw two spots of light, and at that moment I was hooked because it was clear to me that if uh, if a blind patient could see a couple spots of light, it was just an engineering challenge to uh, to add maybe uh, dozens of, uh, of electrodes and the patient would be able to see images just like lights on the scoreboard. Turned out to be a tougher engineering problem. Than I, <laughs> I was going to appreciate it at the time, but it was uh, it was at least it was at least possible. It was clear to me at least at that point it was at least possible. So even though there were many times along the way when when we had tough tough challenges, it uh, it it always uh, I guess I never lost hope because of that, in part because of that early day and uh, knowing that uh, that it would work ultimately. Yeah, you, you touched upon the the moments of discouragement, and it all it all worked out. Last year, the FDA approved the Argus II, um, and you had joined Second Sight. Was it in in '98? So it was 15 years ago or 14 years ago? Yeah, almost 16 years ago, actually. The um, <laughs> so that we started the company. Yeah. The I mean, I've I've been working working on this since since that day. I I met Gene at, at Johns Hopkins. So over uh, over 23 years. But the uh, the company we started about 16 years ago, and uh, sure there were there were there were tough times along uh, along the way where um, one of the one of the tougher engineering challenges that ter- turned out to be tougher than we expected was the retina, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, is like one ply wet tissue paper, mm-hmm. incredibly delicate, very easy to detach, and as we were designing these electrode arrays to interface to that very delicate tissue. 
we we found that in animals the the retinas were detaching, and so coming up with that interface took uh, to ended up taking years to design the the electrode array. And so during that process of years, it it looked like it might be an impossible engineering challenge at times. What was the specific challenge? Was it, it was just too delicate a, a some, too delicate a tissue to connect to? Yeah, basically, uh, that was that was essentially the challenge. That the anything that you would put on it physically in a moving eye would have some sort of mass to it, mm-hmm. and would have some sort of inertia, and then would tend to pull the pull this very delicate tissue off the back of the eye. And so, designing a a way to anchor that electrode array and a way to interface to the retina without damaging it was a turned out to be a much tougher engineering challenge than we uh, than we had planned for. We had we had uh, uh, folks from Google uh, at the at OIS in October, and there was a whole great deal of discussion about their miniaturization miniaturization efforts. Do you think developing a product like this would be simpler today, uh, maybe a faster process today than it was fifteen years ago, twenty years ago? Or well, over, I think over? the I, I think the at the time we started uh, started the company sixteen years ago, I think it was we were at the cutting edge of a number of areas of electronics that were being developed. So certainly cell phone cameras were something that before those were developed uh, would have required a much bigger pair of goggles. And similarly for computers, computers had developed to the point where we could we could develop a pocket video processor that someone could put in their pocket. Um, so those were probably the biggest things and, and all those things are, are smaller now and we're in the process actually of, of developing and new mm-hmm. externals that are even smaller but the the real technological challenges that we faced the things that we had to overcome were on the on the implant side and there technology really hasn't developed that much from where it was 10 years ago uh, because of the need to implant uh, technology for many years and patients and to, in order to test them that to that technology moves much slower than for instance the computer or cell phone industries which where new products come out every year mm-hmm. and I think it's it's much more challenging to develop a new implant so we had to develop a number of new uh, implant technologies so in addition to this very delicate retina as an example we had to develop a electrical stimulator that had a large number of electrodes, so in our case we chose 60 electrodes, and we had to miniaturize that package into the size of about an aspirin so that it would actually fit on the eye. And before before this, the highest number of electrodes was 22 electrodes, and something about the size of a um, maybe an Oreo cookie is what is what existed wow. before. And so... That whole miniaturization process and putting electronics in the body is like taking your television and throwing it in the ocean and having it still work. It's a saltwater environment. And so those challenges still exist today, actually, the, uh, because that, that bar hasn't, uh, hasn't moved as much. And in fact, today, the Argus 2 is the highest number of electro-neurostimulator that's ever been approved. Really? For use. Mm-hmm. Now, now you, had the, you had the Argus 1 approved early on uh, in 2002. But you didn't pursue commercialization. I think one of the reasons I read was that the the length and the complexity of, of the surgery uh, was that a a difficult decision at the time, or was it a pretty obvious one uh, that you had to do go go several steps further? 
it, it was a challenging decision. So our Argus one, uh, we never we never took to market approval, but we did implant it in patients, as you said, in 2002. And the reason we didn't pursue market approval was, in part, because we we um, we thought we were far further along with the Argus two than it turned out. Uh, you know, the various aspects of the development of the Argus two took longer than we thought, but. And so we thought it was right around the corner. But, but as you said, also the surgery for the Argus uh, one took eight hours, and and it was a much more involved surgery. So not only was the patient under general anesthesia for eight hours, but the the complexity of the surgery was much higher and took multiple surgeons. And the feeling was that for a commercially viable product, it really ought to be able to be implanted with a single surgeon. And there's a group in in Europe that has a very similar surgical approach to the uh, to the Argus one with a device behind the ear and a cable that tunnels to the eye and uh, at the time it was a tough decision because we had we had patients who had no alternative mm-hmm. that were really clamoring and begging us to commercialize it and the cost when we looked at the cost though, to commercialize a product we really wanted to f- commercialize the first practical product as opposed to we really viewed the Argus One as a proof of principle. I mean, we really hadn't really envisioned commercializing it, but the results were the results were quite good, and the patients were quite happy with the Argus One. So it was a tough decision to to not make that additional investment and uh, and commercialize it. But we felt like since the the amount of capital required to actually commercialize a product was going to be so great, we really felt that the the next product, which we thought we were only a year or two from from being able to commercialize. Um, we felt that was a better platform. And what were the challenges that, that pushed that original uh, forecast of a couple of years to ultimately was 10 years or so? Uh, yeah, I think, well, I think there were, there were a number of aspects to it. I think one was the, um, we talked about the, the retinal interface mm-hmm. being, being delicate and, and, and solving those issues. Um, I think the other, some of the other things that took longer is the was the development of the of the ways of assessing the patients. So, although we had the product ready, in fact, I think the first the first Argus two was implanted in 2006. So we really weren't that far away from. So it, we implanted Argus ones between 2002 and 2004, and the first Argus two uh, went into a patient in 2006. So we and we were really ready to. We thought or in 2004 to implant our first patient. It took us two years to get the regulatory approvals to do the first implant. So that that took a lot longer getting the regulatory approval to do the first implant. And in fact, we didn't do the first U.S. implant until 2007. The uh, so that took longer. And then I think developing the ways of assessing the patients. One of the things, one of the challenges for the program was that no one had ever taken a blind patient and restored vision. And so there really weren't any assessment tools of how would you assess these these levels uh, of vision that we were restoring. There were ways of assessing a normally sighted person who had lost a little bit of vision, mm-hmm. right? the ET, ETDRS chart and reading charts. But down in this level of low vision, there were really no assessment tools. There was no reason to assess people down at that level in the past. So developing those assessment tools with the low vision community and getting the buy-in of the FDA and, and others 
was something that also took time in the beginning. And then, and then long-term follow-up, uh, the, the FDA wanted uh, to make sure that these devices were going to last a long time in patients. And, the, uh, and so that you know, proving out that not only were they implanted, but the results were sustained over a long period of time mm-hmm. took, took additional time as well. Uh, such that we, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast, that we finally got approval in 2013. Fascinating. We're going to take a quick break and uh, hear this commercial, and we'll be right back. The Ophthalmology Innovation Summit at ASCRS is the premier platform showcasing both public and private companies with cutting-edge surgical technologies. Applications to present are now being accepted through February 27th. Apply online at ois.net forward slash application. And we're back. Uh, I did want to ask about the FDA, but you, you hit upon the, that earlier. I mean, this this would seem to be almost a square peg that, that would try to fit into one of their round holes. It was a really unique and is a really unique technology. Uh, any other uh, any other lessons from, from that experience? Anything that you might have done differently or any advice for people who, are, uh, who have similar devices that are... Uh, going to be seeking FDA uh, approval or at least reaching out to the FDA to, to get some oversight? No, I think one of, one of the things that did help during our development was, was the fact that I actually had worked at the FDA and so understood the, the processes a little bit. And, and, the, and the FDA really has a tough challenge in regulating new technologies that, haven't, uh, that they haven't seen before. One of the things I think that made this product a little bit easier is that it actually wasn't that different than some of the products that they were currently regulating. So the division that reviewed the uh, ophthalmic and ENT division was used to evaluating cochlear implants, which restored hearing to the deaf. And so the the basic mechanism of action was quite similar, where we had an RF-powered device that was electrically stimulating residual neural tissue. And so in terms of safety and the expectations of reliability and, and how the device would work, were, uh, made, made that process a little, bit, uh, a little bit easier. I think one of the challenges was the assessment, the ways of assessing the, the device that made it challenging. And one of the things that I think helps the FDA is, are these panels of experts that they can convene. And in our case, they did convene a panel of experts in 2000, late 2012, and there were I think it was, uh, I understand it was the largest panel of experts that the Atomic Division had ever had ever assembled. I think there were 23 members on the panel and uh, wow. 19, voting, 19 voting members. And, and the great news is the outcome of that panel was that the, uh, the panel voted 19 to 0, that the, uh, the benefits outweighed the, uh, the safety risks of the device. And, and that's what led to the, the pretty rapid FDA approval that's soon after. You, you did mention your your time at the NP, FDA, and I, I saw that in uh, in reading your bio. You were there for is, was it one year uh, as a served as a yeah, medical a little, officer and reviewer for IDEs. Yeah, and, it was, yeah, it was a little bit less than a year that I was uh, reviewing IDEs and five ten Ks. The uh, when I was uh, it was pretty much right out of uh, right out of medical school and graduate school that I went to the FDA, and then and then met met Al Mann about you know, nine or nine months or so into that. And uh, Al convinced me that there was uh, some interesting work going on in California that I, I should check out. Now, and this was the same technology that you had seen uh, tested in, in the early 90s when you went into that operating room? 
the uh, well, no, the work that was uh, so um, the group. What brought me out to California was uh, Al Mann had a nonprofit mm-hmm. research foundation doing advanced research for implantable electronics, and so they were developing next generation cochlear implants and next generation insulin pumps and uh, various various uh, electronics that that went into the body, and so it was really that incredible environment of at the time of several thousand employees uh, working on, on various medical technologies that seemed like a, an interesting hotbed and, and really is what, what uh, the environment that Second Sight grew out of. Mm-hmm. And you've been committed to a career at the FDA or was that just a job out of college? Uh, it was interesting. So at the time, there was a, uh, a hiring freeze, uh, so they, weren't, they didn't have any permanent hires. So uh, I... I do sometimes wonder if they hadn't had that hiring freeze, uh, <laughs> might have stayed there. But um, the uh, I was very interested in regulatory science at the time, and and pr- probably deep down felt like I would uh, get back into actual device development, and that it would it would be a, an experience. But the uh, the regulatory side of things was interesting. How does Argus Two fit into this environment uh, today? It's it, with the the pressures on payers and on providers to to keep costs down. Are you, are you finding a, a warm reception uh, from companies because this is able to do something so remarkable, or, or are you running up against the same headwinds that's affecting so many other uh, device companies today? In in general, we've gotten a, a fairly warm reception from regulators on the reimbursement side. The we we have reimbursement currently in on a national level in Germany and France. There are a number of other comp- uh, countries in Europe that are that are in the process of of reviewing the uh, the data, and there've been there've been some some papers talking about the the cost benefit. Ratios for uh, for the product as well. Uh, on the U.S. side, there are a number of private insurers that have been covering the Argus II. Uh, Medicare has issued uh, codes and and payment, and there's one Max so far that has a coverage policy that's agreed to to cover the Argus II in the uh, Middle Atlantic states. We've been seeing other Medicare contractors uh, paying um, covering it on a case by case basis so far. So we're we're um, we're not certainly not done, and it's certain reimbursement. I think, uh, as you, as you mentioned, is uh, is probably always going to be a a job for uh, for any medical product. But um, but we're happy with uh, the progress so far. And what is the system uh, going for? What is the general expense? So the the device itself is one hundred and forty five thousand uh, dollars U.S. Just under one hundred and forty five thousand. And the um, uh, there's there's surgical fees and uh, and facility fees that that vary from center to center. But uh, on top of that, interesting. And are you able to to demonstrate the economics behind uh, such a price? I mean, it's again you're restoring sight, so it's it's hard to put a price on that. But uh, in these days, you seem like you have to. Everyone seems like they have to. Absolutely. And so the um, the there have been a number of, uh, and I mentioned there's one paper in particular that was that was written out of Europe um, that uh, was published in BMC Ophthalmology, and uh, the first author was uh, Vid- 
Vaidya, uh, V-A-I-D-Y-A, and it really goes into the detail of the, the cost-effectiveness of this therapy. And I think some of the arguments that, that have been used are uh, what are known as the quality of life adjusted years, where the level of visual improvement is equated to a, a dollar number. And Gary Brown in Philadelphia has done a lot of that work in the U.S. as well. And so I think the what what, what the paper that I referenced and others have have shown is that the the level of vision um, uh, produced by the Argus II currently is you know, far exceeds the uh, the cost uh, the current cost of the uh, of the product. And one of the great things about the Argus II is that because it's software based, just like your iPhone uh, can can be upgraded uh, with software improvements. So we expect that the uh, the level of vision we have today is really just a starting point. I'm sure your your testing will be more vigorous than Apple's is when they release their uh, their updates. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we do have full time testing people that uh, that are working on exactly that to try to avoid any any missteps. Uh, final question. Um, Let's just talk about the IPO. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a great story, and I think it's the kind of thing you can see public investors get around. Was it a, what is a was it a fairly easy decision to go public, or were there some other options uh, following the FDA approval, perhaps some interest from strategics, uh, or is, or are they kind of sitting back and, and, and waiting and see what you folks can do? Now we we actually have had good interest from strategics on the uh, both on the technology front and the and for the product the. Our our thinking was that it was um, we wanted to make sure that the um, our the product got out to the as many patients as possible. And as we thought about what the best way to do that, uh, it's difficult to do advanced R and D in in a large company. Mm-hmm. And so one of, one of the thought processes that we had around the board was how we could get to are essentially our our goal, which was to eliminate blindness. And one of the major projects that we really wanted to work on was a project that we now call the Orion, which was essentially bypassing the optic nerve, taking our current retinal implant and putting it in the visual part of the brain so that we could directly stimulate the, the visual center of the brain. So regardless then of why someone was blind, whether it was due to diabetic retinopathy or some or glaucoma or something that would actually damage the optic nerve, you um, you could get a similar uh, result. We expect to what we've been able to get in the retina. So really, we could treat there's around eight million patients who fall into this category who are blind from diseases uh, and today have no therapy. And as we thought about how could we do that, we we debated selling off the Argus two and starting a new company to do that. And ultimately, we decided it was best to keep the company together because it leveraged this new product was essentially the same as the Argus II with a different electrode array. And so it leveraged so much of what we've already done, we wanted to really develop that as an independent company before um, before considering a strategic acquisition. And then we, when we looked at financing opportunities, we felt like this was a good time to do an IPO because with the FDA approval behind us and now wanting to raise the profile of the company and, and make sure that uh, that patients who qualify for the Argus II were aware of it, we felt like this was a good way to um, kind of leave stealth mode, if you will, mm-hmm. and really um, 
let people know about what we've been working on all these years. That's great. Well, I'm, I'm happy you found success. I'm happy the FDA uh, had a hiring seat freeze back in the 97, 98 <laughs> time frame. And uh, look forward to following uh, the Second Sight story even further. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for listening to that OIS podcast with Bob Greenberg. Join us next week for a generational discussion about ophthalmology with Dr. George Waring IV. Please listen in. Join the Surgical Ophthalmology Innovators on April 16th in San Diego for OIS at ASCRS, where you will see and meet the leading companies and clinicians. The now expanded program features a showcase of emerging technologies to treat the most pressing anterior segment diseases, while also including plenary talks and discussions around business, regulatory, and finance. Hear what Jim Mazo has to say. I would tell you that OIS is now the come-to meeting in ophthalmology, and the reason is, is you're able to bring industry, practitioners, innovators in one audience discussing not what's happening today, but what's happening tomorrow. Very rarely do you have a meeting where you're discussing the future of an industry. You're usually talking about the presence, and that's why people come to this meeting, because they're hearing about things today that will impact our industry tomorrow. Visit OIS.net and sign up today.